Good morning, Trailview Church. Would you stand for the reading of God's Word? Today we're reading from Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat if you have a Bible. I want to encourage you to open it up or scroll to it if it's on your phone to Psalm 51. Uh, my name is Derek. I'm one of the pastors here, and I want to encourage you, if you're new here, uh, maybe it's your first time here, you've been coming, uh, if you have not filled out uh, this Connect card, I want to encourage you to fill that Connect card out this morning. Uh, that's the best way that we can follow up with you. Uh, just get to know you a little bit more, share a little bit of our story. We're a right about 10-month-old church plant, um, and by God's grace and countless miracles, we stand here today through COVID and our first summer, which is a bigger thing than most people realize as a church plant. Um, but God has been so good, and we want to share with you that story as well as hear a little bit about who you are. And this is the best way for us to do that. And so uh, as well, if this morning, uh, if you've been here or you're new, uh, if there's something that the Lord is doing in your heart, uh, maybe it's He's moving you to kind of put down some roots at Trailview Church. We say this here pretty frequently. There's no biblical precedent for a Christian that's not a member of the local church. And so if that means you've been here for a while and you're like, I need to become a member of Trailview Church, then then this card's your next step. Fill out that, check that box. Maybe you've put your faith in him and you need to follow him in, in a baptism after your salvation. Uh, maybe you want to jump on one of our serving teams. Whatever that looks like, this is your best friend and taking next steps for us to follow up with you this next week. Also on the backside is a prayer card. This isn't just an empty thing we throw on there because we're like, oh, we want people to think we pray and we care about prayer. We do and we pray for these things. Uh, and so we want you to utilize this. I said this the last few weeks, um, the amount of these that your pastors, Brandon and I, receive should reflect the things going on in your lives. 
And so if, uh, if there's something going on in your personal life, in your marriage if you're married, in your singleness if you're single, in your, uh, if you're a teenager or if you're uh, elderly, wherever you find yourself in life that you would like for us to be aware of and be praying with you for, um, utilize this prayer card. Uh, you can do a few things with this card, whichever side you fill out. You can do it digitally by using the QR code in your phone. You can drop it in the box on the back right over there on your way out. Uh, or you can just bring it straight up to myself or Pastor Brandon who did the welcome. He'll also do the closing time this evening. We typically hang out back around the group's wall thing at the end. So you can bring it directly to us. We'd love to sit and pray with you uh, then, or you can bring it to us and we'll be praying for these on Tuesday morning when we do every single week. So if you're new here, connect card. If you have something you'd like for us to join you in prayer for, that. Um, so uh, as we look into Psalm 51, let me ask you a question. What do you do when you blow it? Like when you just like really just drop the ball or like really just mess up big. Like what do you do? <laughs> Come to church like, I really messed up. I need to go to church today. Like if it's Sunday, great, that works. If it's not, what do you do? <laughs> kind of thing. Uh, so like, what do you do when you really blow it? Maybe it's, it's personally internal sin or, or some action towards a friend or, or a neighbor or a family member. Uh, like what do you do when you blow it? Rachel and I have three dogs. They blow it pretty frequently um, as dogs. Um, there's this kind of one rule that we have in our house. Don't leave the pantry open when you leave because the dogs will have their way. Um, they typically have their way with the trash, though. Um, they'll knock the can over and get everything that's possible out of the trash. Uh, and we'll come home. Everything's been great. We've been out to dinner. We've been hanging out with family or friends or whatever. And we walk in the house and we just immediately see it. And our kids have learned our behavior, and they're like, bad dog, bad dog, bad dog. When they see it, they started doing that, and we're like, oh, that's probably not good. But anyway, like, like our kids uh, have seen this play out, uh, but all three of my dogs react totally differently to this, like, we just made a big old mess, tearing up all the trash and eating anything that was edible and all the things that aren't edible in the trash. Shiloh, this is her posture. Yeah, whatever, I don't really care. <laughs> She'll lay there. She's just like, what are you going to do about it? Like, kind, of, kind of her attitude. She's just like defiantly, yeah, I shoot up your trash and made a big mess. I'm 11 years old. It's what I do. <laughs> like kind of thing. Um, you have Calvin who's like, huh? What happened? Huh? I don't know. I don't know. You just walk around like nothing happened. And then you have Lewis and he's like, oh no, don't hit me and runs away. Like, like, like they all three respond totally differently to us, their owners, when they've blown it by chewing up and making a big mess of the trash in our house. Uh, it's not uncommon for us when we blow it, when we sin, either small internally in our own hearts or big and externally and it impacts people in ripples throughout our life, maybe ongoing for the rest of our life or, or just circumstantially now in our life. Um, what is your natural posture in those moments? It might be something that reflects my dogs, not because we're like dogs per se, but because we're, we have a tendency to do similar things. Uh, maybe you don't care. You're like, nah, I've done it before. Maybe you're like, oh yeah, whatever, we'll just act like it didn't happen. Or, or maybe you run and hide in shame. Or maybe another option, you, you're like, oh, well, I got to make up for it. I know I tore up the trash and made a big mess, but I'm going to make sure I go to the bathroom outside every time this week. Like, <laughs> like uh, to put it in my dog's illustration, <laughs> I hope you don't go to the bathroom outside all week. Um, <laughs> uh, some of you are like, my kids try. Uh, but, like, um, but here's the deal. Sin, 
When we blow it, sin particularly puts our hearts in a posture to run and hide. It does. We see this in Adam and Eve in the garden with the first sin. What do they do? They go make clothes because they now know they're naked and sinful and shame has covered them. They make clothes out of leaves. Not going to last very long. (laughs) And then they run and hide in the bushes from God, whom they have never feared before, whom they have walked with in great delight. But sin has a way of posturing our hearts to run and hide from God. Run and hide in, in living a life that has no vulnerability. And keep everybody at arm's distance. Because if you know what's going on inside of my heart, you'll hurt me. We do that to God. We do that to our peers. People we're in home groups with. Or whether it's, it's in, and oftentimes we're actually hiding in plain sight when we do that. We're sitting in community and hiding by hiding our sin. What's going on in our hearts? Or whether we're, we're the posture or place that we run and hide and that we, we just run, literally. We're like, I'm going to run away from God. I'm going to run away from people who love God. I'm going to run away from those things. I'm just going to not show up. Like, and oftentimes sin puts us in that posture. And throughout this summer, we've been walking through some different psalms. And the psalms are songs and poems. Uh, sometimes they're laments. Sometimes they're a song of praise. We've read a few verses out of some other psalms when we were praying earlier. Uh, but the psalms, uh, being songs and poems, and like a lot of the songs that we like and listen to in life, they don't shy away from uh, hard or complicated emotional or physical or social or relational realities. They don't hide from them. They don't avoid them. They bring them front and center in those songs and poems, and they do that for an intended purpose. They do that so that God might woo our hearts closer to Him so that the Word of God may be spoken directly into that place. And so today in Psalm 51, this reality that our sin often postures our hearts to run from God, to hide from God or others, Psalm 51 lays out this clear and blatant thing. God is merciful, so we should run to Him. That's the main point of the entire psalm. That's the main point of of this morning's sermon is God is merciful, so when we sin, when we blow it, we should not run from Him, but we should run to Him. And if we think about moments or times when we've blown it, when we've sinned personally in small ways in our hearts on a consistent daily basis or in some grandiose way maybe in your life or story if you want to disconnect from it. It's not great for your heart, but to think about somebody else who's really blown it. We'll do that in a second with somebody in the Bible. Um, We see uh, that the Psalms meet us in the middle of that place. Specifically to set the stage for us for Psalm 51, it's a psalm written by David directly after a really hard conversation he had with a friend of his named Nathan. To set the stage, David's king of Israel. He's gone from shepherd boy, anointed king, ran around in the wilderness trying to be killed by Saul to actually king. Kingdom's going great. The the, the army's off at war. He should be there. He's not. He's not at war. He's hanging out at home. He goes up on the rooftop. He looks off the roof and he sees a pretty woman taking a bath. They all bathed on the roof. It wasn't weird. Um, But he goes up on the roof, probably in a moment of sexual sin and temptation, hoping to see someone. And he sees a beautiful woman taking a bath on the roof. 
And he comes down from the roof and he says, who is that? I I want her. And his servants go and they get Bathsheba and they bring her to the palace. And David, at best, commits adultery. At worst, commits sexual assault. There's going to be an argument for both. He, He blows it. But he doesn't just stop there. He realizes, uh, I've made a mess. Why? Because Bathsheba's pregnant. And so he's like, all right, who's her husband? Uriah? Oh, that general in my army who's off at war where I should be? Oh, boy. Um, well, look, look, here, take a message to him, bring him back, take some respite from war, he'll go home, he'll be with his wife, and we'll cover it all up, and we'll be good. Uriah comes back. Uriah is incredibly faithful to King David, and he won't go home. It's like if, if the king's men are off at war, it feels completely inappropriate for me to be at home in bed with my wife. So he refuses to go home. He sleeps in the king's quarters, like in his house, refusing to go home. He's like, oh, let's get him drunk, then he'll go home. Nope. He doesn't. So David's like, okay, well... I tried covering it up. That didn't work. So let's kill him. But we got to do it in a like appropriate way. So he sends Uriah with a personal letter back to war. And in that letter, it gives to the general. It says, uh, have, a, uh, have the whole army do an advance in attack. Put Uriah in the very front and everyone retreat. But don't tell Uriah we're retreating. And so it plays out, and Uriah is killed in battle. He's murdered. And David's like, all right, I'll be the hero here. I'll take Bathsheba in. I'll be the hero. I'll take this woman who's grieving at the death of her her husband in, and I'll care for her. And all seems to be covered up and clean and good. And then David's friend Nathan, the prophet Nathan, comes to David. He's like, hey David, let me tell you a story. There was this guy who had one sheep. And he loved that sheep so dearly. Like it slept in his house. He nurtured and cared for it as his only precious sheep. And there's this other guy who had thousands of sheep. And he really wanted that guy's sheep, so he went and he stole it. And David's reaction is like, where is the man justice now. And Nathan looks at him and goes, you're the man. You are the one. And David immediately, God's grace in hard conversation from his friend Nathan is cut to the heart and convicted of all the sin that he has done. And Psalm 51 is David's lament in prayer about his own heart in response to the sin that he has done, the wake that it created around him into other people's lives. And Psalm 51 is that. So as we walk through this, we're going to see a few things. One, like I said earlier, uh, God is merciful, so we should run to Him. A a lament, a prayer of lament, is us as a a person, of child of God, running to Him with our hearts. Uh, And we're going to see this. As David laments, he echoes this, who God is, who we are, what we need, and what the fruit of confession are. So we'll walk through those, and I'll tell you as we we walk through. But the first one, who God is. Psalm 51, verse 1 and 2 say this. 
Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Then as this psalm opens, you see David go directly to God. Have mercy on me, O God. And he says this word, according to, according to. That he's saying, God, I need mercy, and he comes to God uh, for that mercy. And, And here's what it echoes. The basis for mercy and forgiveness for your sin is God's character, not the weight or severity of your sin. Like God's condition on whether he's going to give mercy, give love and forgiveness to sin is not conditional to the weight or severity of what you have done. But it's according to his character, his steadfast love, his abundant mercy. You see, uh, 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 here's a question Rachel and I've been talking about the last few weeks. When you think about, like if you, I know God is spirit. Yes, God the Father is spirit. Um, But if you were to take what the Bible, the picture the Bible paints of God, or or just kind of what your heart thinks about him, and you were to say like, okay, if I imagine God sitting on a throne, what's his facial expression? Just ask that. Like if I imagine God sitting on his throne, and I see him, what, what do I think his facial expression is? Probably stern. Maybe stoic. Maybe even like a, like a grimace. And, and all of that understanding in our heart leads us to go like, I need to run away. <laughs> I need to hide. And the reality is, despite the great divide and disconnect between Santa Claus and, and God in a bajillion different ways, I think the face of God might look more like Santa Claus. Jolly. Dear, glad to see you, eager for you to run to him, than what many of us may see on the face of God. See, the first time God ever describes himself in the Bible, other than all of the like ways you can infer from all of creation and everything leading up to Exodus chapter 34 about who God is, the first God time God actually says who he is, self-declares who he is, is in Exodus 34. And it says this, the Lord, this is when God passed before Moses. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, vesting the iniquities of the fathers on their children and their children's children to the third and fourth generation. Oftentimes we read that or we see that and we're like, oh, ooh, ooh, God, God's not going to clear the guilty. Oh, he's going to have, like, he's going to carry on my sin to my kids. Like, oh, no, that's terrible. It's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Slow down. What did God say his first initial posture and heart is? Merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That God's default posture towards us is not wrath and anger, but a desire to extend forgiveness, mercy, and grace, steadfast love and faithfulness. 
A love that steadfast and endures beyond all of our sin, that his nature and default is mercy and steadfast love. And this is why David begins this psalm there. God, your default, I'm going to lean heavy on. Mercy, abounding steadfast love. See, David's response to his sexual sin, the conspiracy and cover-up, the murder, isn't to run, but to lean into the mercy and steadfast love of God. He comes to him in confession and repentance. He, this first thing that we see in these few verses is who God is. He is steadfast in love, abounding in mercy towards us sinners who blow it. So we have to believe before we will ever come to God. We have to see and remind ourselves that He is first and foremost longing to show and bestow mercy and love to you, to me. And the second thing we see in this psalm is this, who we are. Psalm 51, 3-6 continues and says this, For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgments. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Who are we? God is all the things we just described. Merciful, loving, steadfastly loving, ab- abundant. His, you can't out God's mercy. So that abundance is saying. There's no limits or bounds which I was like, oh, I was going to be merciful, but you did this. No, it doesn't play out that way. But us, our sin is ever before us, David says. He says, against you and you alone have I sinned. I was brought forth in iniquity and sin like he's echoing that to the core of who i am i am sinful like in the core in the heart of who i am i am sinful he echoes this in saying like first and in greatest capacity i've sinned against you god yeah you think about the things david did he sinned against Bathsheba. he sinned against uriah he sinned against his army generals who were cons- he was forcing into this conspiring. I'm sure there was probably some, maybe, some guilt uh, just laid in upon those servants who went and got Bathsheba. Uh, I mean, like, yeah, David sinned against a lot of people. This child that would eventually die because of David's sin. Like, there was a lot of people who experienced the ripple effect of David's sin against God, but what he's echoing is that my heart, first and foremost, is sinful against God. God. And ultimately, we look at that like to sin against an image bearer of God is to sin against God. To devalue a human being is to sin against God. To take a life from a human being in murder, clarify that, in murder, is to sin against God who has created them in the image of himself. See, we are sinful. At our heart. And what this, these verses here in David's lament does, it, it, it's David owning his sinfulness before God. 
Well, we use this phrase uh, quite frequently at Trailview. It's like the best thing that you can do when you're confronted with your sin is own it. And I don't mean own it as in like personalize it, like, oh, I am my sin, but to take responsibility for it. And so David's taking personal responsibility for his sin before God in confession. I have sinned. I have sinned at the core of who I am, I have sinned in my heart, I have sinned in my actions, I have sinned in my, uh, my, my, my actions towards this person and this person, but ultimately, God, yes, I have done what is evil in your sight. That if we're going to walk through what it looks like for us to lament in the face of our own sin, it begins by remembering who God is, merciful and loving. And it moves to us seeing rightly who we are, Sinners in need of God's grace. And then it moves from there to the third thing, what we need. Now, before we get to the what we need part, there's a beautiful picture of God's posture towards us in owning our own sin. Uh, there's a story where Jesus, there's a bunch of Pharisees and religious dudes uh, who catch a woman in adultery. They catch her in sexual sin. And they drag her out in the street in front of Jesus. And they all have stones ready to do what the law says, stoner. And Jesus spins down, he draws in the sand, and he says one thing, let him who has no sin cast the first stone. And slowly the men, the religious men around, drop their stones and walk away. And this woman, caught in her sin, before God himself, Jesus, probably down on her knees, maybe dressed, maybe not, we don't really know, probably crying, and Jesus looks, probably lifts her face up, says, where are your accusers? I don't either, go and sin no more. That Jesus' posture, God's posture towards us when we rightly see ourselves as sinners in need of his mercy and love is mercy and love. Not shame, not condemnation, not stoning. When we find ourselves like that woman caught in adultery, like David exposed by his friend Nathan, when we find ourselves humbly before God in clear view of our own sin and need of His mercy and love, He extends mercy and love what we need. He meets our need for mercy and love. The third thing, what we need, we see in this psalm. Verses 7 through 12 say this, Purge me with hyssop, and I may be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sin. And blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold within me a willing spirit. What do we need when we blow it? We come before God, we own our sin and responsibility. What do we need? Him to work in us. In the depths of who we are, we need Him to work. 
So we cry out to him and lament for him to work. I was sharing a story earlier this morning with, with somebody. Um, this last week's been particularly challenging in our household. Um, not because like there's anything tragic going on, but because sin is just like very apparent <laughs> in everyone who lives there. <laughs> and so like in that, like I, I, there have been moments where I have not responded to my kids' disobedience in kindness and grace, um, but in anger and frustration. And so the other night I had put the boys down to bed. They're seven. And, uh, and a few minutes later, I, I walked back upstairs to their room. They were like quietly laying in their beds. Um, and I went up next to both of them and I said, buddy, I need to say I'm sorry. Daddy's heart has been angry and frustrated this week. And uh, I need to spend some time asking Jesus to change my heart. And then I went to the other boy and I did the same exact thing. Why? Because I became clearly aware in that moment, uh, after the chaos has subsided, <laughs> um, what I need most right now is Jesus to change my heart. And what David echoes here is he needs God. Above and above everything else. If you look at the actual grammatical structure of these things, David is asking God to do to him all of these things. He's the passive recipient of all of them. The passive recipient of everything that God he's asking of God. To purge him, to wash him, to speak, let me hear joy and gladness, to speak to him, to not hide but to remain near, to blot out. It's like, to, like you get a stain, what do you do? You get something that takes out stain and you blot it out. To create in him, God's creator. To renew in him, to not cast him away. To not remove his presence. To bring restoration. Like he's asking God to do all of these things in him. Because why? Because God is the only one who can do that. God is the only one who can purge, to, to remove sin from within him. God is the only one who can speak words that bring joy and gladness in the midst of defeat and, and failure. God's words are the only ones that make brokenness rejoice. Like he literally gives God credit for breaking his bones. Clarify, that's like an interesting little phrase there. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. That God's chastisement for our sin sometimes hurts. But even in the pain of our sin, God's voice brings joy and gladness. That we need God to create a heart that mirrors and reflects Him, clean and righteous. We need His presence. It's interesting, he says, hide your face from my sin, but don't cast me away from your presence. Like, God, can you, can you not see my sin, but don't walk away? Stay here with me, but please, like, don't see my wickedness. Only by the grace of Jesus are we able to stand next to God, sinless and righteous. When our sin has been blotted out, when it's been purged by faith in Him, when, when we have received a spirit, His Spirit that will never be taken, when He has begun this work of restoration in your soul, 
only by faith in Jesus. What David's echoing in this, he doesn't say like, oh God, can you like take care of Bathsheba and like, uh, can you fix the relational issues that I've caused with my army and uh, um, Oh, like he doesn't, he doesn't look circumstantially, although I'm sure there was a lot of that conversation. In his lament before God, when confronted with his sin, his heart, or he is most concerned with his own heart. And this is hard. Like it's hard in the face of your anger to be aware of your own heart. It's hard in the face of your sorrow to beware, be aware of your own heart. It's hard. It takes work and practice. It takes sitting silently before the Lord. But what David does not seem at all concerned with is fixing his external actions that led him up on the rooftop in the first place to see Bathsheba bathing. By all means, get covenant eyes. Put it on everything you got if you struggle with sexual sin and temptation and pornography. Do it. But if you never deal with your heart, it's not going to help. What David's echoing for us, what God's word is saying here is, your greatest problem is not other people, it's not circumstances, it's you. Like your heart is the greatest problem in your life. And you need God to work in it. Our hearts must become in focus in our lives. So we can ask the Lord to bring about transformation where we need it most. So, so how do we begin considering our hearts? Let me ask or put forward a few little things that you can try to start doing maybe once a week or every day. Uh, one, ask yourself when you're aware of your sin, why? Why did I do that? Uh, one guy, he even suggests asking yourself why five times. Like, okay, why did I act like that? Okay, well, why did I do that? Well, why did I do that? Like, get, chase the rabbit to see what your heart has in it. Ask yourself why. Another thing you can do, once you ask yourself and give yourself space to ask why, Sit quietly and journal. Write. Sit quietly. One thing that we can no longer do is only address sin on the surface. So in community, in our home groups, we ought to be asking one another questions that get to our hearts, not just to the surface. Oh, I've just been struggling this week with uh, stress because of work? Yeah, t tell me why. Oh, it's on my boss or uh, this project that we're working on. Or It's like, okay, well, why is that like, particularly difficult? Ask why of each other. Don't settle for addressing sin on the surface. We need to, like David here, bring the fullness of our sin all the way down into our hearts publicly out before God in confession. And then what do we do with it? Ask. Ask Him to do what only He can do to your heart. Bring transformation. I, I, I'm sure 
there were other people involved that David, like Eve, could have pointed the finger at, but he doesn't. Like all of this, what David needs is focused on who? His own heart. Not the heart of his spouse or the heart of his friend or the heart of his kids. Well, if they wouldn't do this, then I wouldn't do that. That's not a part of this conversation between David and God. It's right here within his own heart. So consider your heart. What do you need God to do most in your own soul? And then ask him to do what only he can do. And what's the fruit that comes about of this kind of confession and lament? Where we see clearly God is merciful and loving, so we can run to him, owning our sin and responsibility, who we are, where we can cry out for him to do what only he can do, what we need most to bring transformation to the inner part of our being, our heart. What's the fruit? Verses 13 through 15 echo this. There's a really important word in verse 13. It's a really small word, then. After all of this, then. After all of this, seeing you as merciful and gracious, running to you, owning my responsibility for sin, asking you to change me at the core, then. Verse 13 13 says this. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. What's the result of heart level confession before God? What's the result? Worship. And it begins with teaching other people, like to, to actually instruct other people about who God is as merciful and gracious and steady or steadfast in love. So run to him and other people join you in running to him. And that doesn't come from acting like you have nothing wrong. That comes from seeing the Lord transform who you are in the midst of your deepest, darkest moments. Like, why do I go before Noah and Levi and own my sin and confess it to them and ask them for forgiveness and share with them that I need Jesus to transform my heart? Psalm 51 echoes this pattern. You do this, and then other people will see you do this and also return to God. I want Noah and Levi to see their sin, see God as merciful and loving, and run to him for their salvation. And that comes as a fruit of us doing this. He says, then my tongue will sing aloud your righteousness. Apparently, the ability to sing in a heart of worship is from a place of seeing God as merciful and steadfast in love and experiencing his mercy towards your sin. Like, uh, according to this, those who worship Jesus most, not saying like externally, like that their hearts are in a posture of worship most loudly are those who have experienced the mercy and love of God in the face of their sin. Which means if you want to see and experience like a, a wholeness of heart worship for God, it comes as a result of letting Him work in your heart. 
This is singing loud of the character of God. I mean, it, like the result of this kind of confession and experience of God's mercy and love is that we declare His praise. That when we experience God's mercy and love in a direct way into our own sin, it leads to us telling people about this Jesus. And I think about the guy Jesus ran into when he crossed the sea. He goes over into the ten cities, the Decapolis, and he's approached by this demon-possessed guy. And it's this weird thing that nobody's ever been able to do anything about. And Jesus just like cast out the thousands of demons into the pigs. The guy puts his faith in Jesus and he's like, I want to come with you. And Jesus is like, no, go back and tell everybody else. Go back to your city and tell everybody else. What's the natural overflow of experiencing the mercy of God towards your sin and his steadfast love? Evangelism. Mission. Like when I see sin clear and apparent in my community, a heart that is experienced regularly through a pattern of confession and repentance, God's mercy and love, wants them to experience his mercy and love. Not condemnation, not shame, not judgment. That's the posture of the Pharisees who don't think they need mercy. The fruit of confession before the Lord and receiving his mercy and steadfast love is a transformational life, a a, a worship, a singing aloud to him, and a life that declares to others his mercy and love. It's that like, come to the fountain where I have found living water. And it echoes this at the end. The kind of summary punchline of this whole entire thing is verses 16 through 19. It's what God desires for his people. It's what his glory demands from us. Worship. Verse 16 says, For I will not delight in sacrifice, or I would, or you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifice of God are a broken spirit and a broken contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. That David could have walked to the temple. He could have made sacrifice. He could have gone to church and sang. But what he echoes here is God doesn't want that in the face of our sin and need for his mercy and grace. He desires for us to have a broken spirit, a contrite heart, and to run to him for mercy and grace. And sometimes that looks like worship. Like singing. Sometimes it looks like it. I'm I'm confident that there were people throughout all of Israel's history, uh, we know this, who went to the temple with broken and contrite hearts. We know this. Jesus tells the story of the tax collector in the temple. He stood in the back. He beat his breast in agony of his sin and need of mercy. And the religious guy stood there next to him and was like, God, thankful I'm not like that guy. And Jesus says, who walked home from the temple righteous before God that day? The one who was broken and contrite, crying out to God in his temple for mercy. God desires for us to have an ongoing posture and realization that we need his mercy and steadfast love. And he's the only place that we can find it when we run to him. But it doesn't stop there with just you worshiping personally. Like my hope and longing is that today 
you're confronted with your sin and you run to Jesus and receive his mercy. You run to Jesus and experience his, his, his steadfast love that surpasses and endurance your sin. But he also cares about us corporately. He says, do good to Zion, meaning God's people, Jerusalem. In your good pleasure, build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifice and burnt offering. Whole burnt offering, then bulls will be offered on your altar. That God doesn't only long for and desire that David would come humbly before him in confession where he can find mercy and love and forgiveness. He desires that all of his people would collectively and corporately realize and respond to God in their need for mercy and love. Like there are corporate sins. There are things that whole groups of people collectively do that are sinful. There are things that we as a church, uh, hopefully by God's grace, don't take place, but we could find ourselves in a place where we corporately need to repent before God and ask for His mercy upon us as a, as a, as a church. What this echoes for us today is that God's desire is that this place, our hearts, the community of Trailview Church would be a place where we are clearly aware of God's posture of mercy and love, and we regularly as a community run to Him in confession and repentance. Where we, like Nathan, are courageous to gently and lovingly long for righteousness in one another, and we ask heart-level questions. Hey, so... I saw you respond to your wife like this the other day. Hey, I saw uh, the way that you uh, reacted to that thing on social media. Like, tell me a little bit about what's going on there inside you. Like that we pursue one another for our own individual good of righteousness and confession. Like, maybe Jesus' mercy and steadfast love Today, you're like, I've, I've never come to Jesus. Aware of my sin and need of his salvation, his mercy and grace, forgiveness of my sin. And today, you need to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. Today, aware of your sin and your need of Jesus to bring transformation to your soul, need to come to him today. Romans 10, 9 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, forgiven of your sin, made right before God and have eternity ahead of you with him, forgiven. I encourage you, if that's you today, that you would put your faith in Jesus today. That you would believe the gospel today. That God has been working to show his mercy and steadfast love to you in Jesus. Maybe today your heart needs to take a posture of confession and repentance. You've seen the mercy and love of God. His posture is that way and your response in exposure of the Holy Spirit to your sin is to confess and repent of it. Uh, like Confession and repentance is like discipline. It doesn't feel good, but it leads to joy. It leads to life and it should be the joyful way of the, of the Christian life. Maybe it's bitterness in you or anger. Maybe it's sexual sin. 
Maybe it's gossip or slander or jealousy, greed or envy, all of these external kinds of sins that, that your response this morning needs to say, I know this is in me. Why? What's going on in my heart that I need Jesus to transform? And humbly in prayer, come before him in confession and ask him to change your heart. Maybe the response is singing and praising him for his faithful, steadfast love and mercy. Maybe it's, it's reflecting on how, uh, this is kind of communally for us, like our posture as God's people in Burleson and Crowley should reflect God's posture towards us. Like your heart, when you think about your neighbor, physical neighbor, coworker, friend, when you think about people on social media, when you think about uh, our, our community, when you think about the, the people who work at the restaurants or the places you go to, when you think about your employees or your employer, when you think about people who need Jesus in our community, does your heart reflect God's mercy and steadfast love for them? It should. Like we should be extending and displaying and reflecting God's mercy and love to our community. Not retreat, separate from dirty so we can stay clean. Not judgment and condemnation, but mercy and love to our community that needs Jesus. I'm going to pray and, and then we're going to sing. And I don't know what your response looks like. If you need to put your faith in Jesus, cry out to Him to, to save you today. If you need to, to confess your sin and you want to sit quietly and do that, or if you want to come and talk with Pastor Brandon back here or myself over here or another person inside of this room and, and confess your sin to one another, and in that, you're letting the Lord in on it. If you need to journal and write a little lament about your sin, do that. If singing loudly and praising Him for His mercy and His love is it, then do that. If there's a particular person in your life that you're like, God is sending me as a means of His mercy and love to them, commit to do that today. Like Resolve in your heart that you're going to start moving towards them with mercy and love. But let's respond to Psalm 51, to what God is saying. Father, we thank you so much for, for being and having a posture of mercy and, and love. That you don't ignore sin or your mercy wouldn't be necessary. But you see our sin even more clearly than we do and you are ready, eager, and able to bestow, to give abundant mercy and steadfast love. So God, would you create in this room, in each of our hearts this morning, a heart that just is filled with gladness because of your mercy and love? Uh, uh, voices that sing loudly to you who has extended mercy and love? Hearts that are broken and contrite over our sin and sing and long for, for you to continue to bestow on them, us, mercy and love? Lives that missionally move towards others in mercy and love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can stand and sing. If you need to chat, Pastor Brand's back there. I'll be in the back over here.